That's, uh, that's humbling for me to hear that and from uh, Pastor Cruz to ask you to receive the word as though you're receiving it from a pastor within this church because I need to tell you that I have the utmost respect and honor and love for the pastors who serve this church from Pastor Moran to Gottlieb to Co to Cruz. So grateful for the leaders in this church and so grateful for Seven Mile Road and just the model of a gospel-centered church on mission here, just north, just north of Boston, is so beautiful to me to look at that and to see that. And for me to be able to join uh, through the Ox Track, to be welcomed into the Ox Track as you guys welcome me into the Ox Track has been an amazing blessing in my life. So uh, for you to say that humbles me even more, creates a little more fear in me as I come here uh, to share God's word with you. And before we do that, I just want to ask you to pray with me. Father, you are good and you do good, and I thank you for calling us together as your people here this morning. And Father, I come before you begging you to cling my soul to you and for your right hand to uphold me this morning, Father, because you know I come weak. You know I come as a sinful man begging for your mercy to be upon me as I bring your word as your tool and pray you would bring to life many here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I am Brian, Brian Page. I have... A beautiful wife, Danielle, who is at home right now, actually serving our church right now. With our two little ones, we have Dylan, who is 26 months, and he's crazy right now, and that's a good thing. We love him to death. We love raising him, so he's amazing to us. We have Lucas, who turns four months today, and uh, he's amazing, does not cry whatsoever, just smiles at you, doesn't like to sleep too much, but we're working through that right now. So it's beautiful. Uh, My family sends regards, so thank you. Um, I've also been a pastor at uh, a church in Haverhill now for a little over three years, been serving on that pastoral team. And in just a few short months, I will be transitioning in as the lead pastor of that church, leading a, a replant revitalization in that city. And what you need to hear from me is this, is that I come this morning singing to the tune of I once was lost, but literally have been set free by the power of the gospel in my life. And you hear many stories of that in so many different ways of how the gospel impacts someone's life and how the spirit regenerates a life and brings a person from death to life. And now they're serving Christ faithfully. But man, for me, I grew up in and around this area. So I don't come from faraway land. My home was Boston, in and around Boston for the better part of my life. Um, I lived in Woburn, was born in Winchester, spent some time in Revere. I graduated from Dom Sabio, so me and Pastor Cruz have some, some linkage there, which is amazing. Um, and I've been all over the North Shore. And so God has literally given me a heart for this area and further up now into the city of Haverhill specifically. But from what God has done in my life, I'm still even humbled just to know that God would use me as a tool to bring his word. I went to Dom Sabio, graduated from Dom Sabio. Played hockey and baseball, was grateful that God had given me a gift, went to college to play. But by the time I was a junior in college, had become a full-blown heroin addict. And for the next three years after I dropped out of school, went on a just crazy run of just drugs and crime and pursuing crazy things to the point of just wanting to die, wanting to end my life uh, in a, in, right in front of Blanchard's in Revere. If you know, are you familiar with Revere? Standing outside a payphone. November of 2002, broken, nothing to do, had tried to kill myself, but was too much of a coward to put a gun to my head. So I tried to do it by taking a bunch of drugs and it didn't work. 
And I had some people in my life who had been preaching the gospel to me. And I, was, I didn't grow up in a church context. My parents weren't Christian. So the whole God thing, I had gone to a church a couple of times and was dating a girl who would come back to Jesus. So I followed her there because, you know, I was all about the girl, not about Jesus. And so had people preaching, to the, preaching the gospel to me and saying something about this ministry called Teen Challenge for about three years, saying, man, you need to go to Teen Challenge and do 15 months. And I was like, no. And I wound up outside of Blanchard's Liquors, Liquors at 11.30 the night before Thanksgiving in 2002, broken, homeless, strung out on heroin, and calling up my mom, who I hadn't talked to in about six months, knowing that the next phone call she got regarding me could be re- in regards to planning my funeral. And she got a, co- a call from me begging her to come home, that I had nowhere to go, that I was broken and I was done, and I had hit my wit's end, and I could not continue to live the way I was living anymore. And God in his grace brought me to my parents' doorstep where at the time a pastor had come to their house and was praying with them for me, was sharing the gospel with my family and they were praying for me. Wound up on their doorstep and God by his grace brought me to the doors of Teen Challenge in 2002 and the gospel has impacted my life where uh, I am no longer a heroin addict, no longer in and out of jail. God has faithfully called me out of darkness into light. He's called me to lead my wife, Danielle, to lead our kids, to father our kids, to train them and lead them. He's called me to pastor his church now, which is amazing to me. And I'm blown away that he would call someone like me who is still sinful and wretched and begging for God's grace in my life every single day. It's amazing to me that he would call me to do this. So I come literally with a, just a, an overwhelmed heart just saying thank you for the opportunity to be here and share from God's word. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, what is meekness? We hear meekness and we can automatically equate that word sometimes maybe with weakness. If you see me kind of doing this and doing this, it's because I can tend to have ADD and I don't want to run off on a tangent, so I'm going to stay focused for you here so we're not here for an hour and 25 minutes because that could happen, and I'm not going to do that to you. So what is meekness? Some definitions, right? Some, some words that might go along with this word meekness, some false impressions of what meekness might be. Here we go. Uh, docile, impotent, quiet, nice, soft, wishy-washy. Evidencing little spirit or courage. Overly submissive or compliant. All of these, all of these words, I believe, from what Jesus is beginning to teach here in the Sermon on the Mount, is not what Jesus is after when he uses and drops this word, meekness, on us. Jesus was not conveying someone who was weak, someone who was docile, someone who was impotent, someone who was kind of wishy-washy in the way they lived their life. But he's communicating, essentially, not a naturally nice person, but this is what the kingdom life looks like, fueled by repentance. This is what true discipleship looks like. This is what real, this is a step into real Christianity. As Jesus lays out these beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus is laying out for us. This is what discipleship looks like. And all of this, all of these things are fueled in the beatitudes by repentance. A person who sees and grasps that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? Matthew four seventeen. a little bit before, 
the pivotal point in Jesus' ministry where he went from preparation to now public ministry, and he lays it out for us like this. At this time in Matthew 4, 17, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is our context. This is what Jesus is laying out for us. That through the Beatitudes, this is what a kingdom life looks like. This is what discipleship looks like. This is what the gospel-centered life begins to look like. Now, a side little note that the Beatitudes don't essentially become a menu for us to choose from. What we want to take and what we don't want to take. It's not like strolling across the street to Liberty Bell, right? And walking in and checking out the menu of the Beatitudes and going, hey man, I think I'll take some poor in spirit. I think I'll take some mourning today, but I'm not down with the meekness. I think I'm good on that right now. Or, or next week I walk in and go, yeah, you know what? I'll taste a little bit of meekness, not really feeling the poor in spirit right now. I'm, I'm feeling like I got this thing down pat right now for a little bit. So I'm good with that. But the Beatitudes are not a menu from which we get to choose what we want to implement into our life. But this is actually a process. The Beatitudes become the process by which someone who wants to live the gospel-centered life, someone who wants to live a kingdom life, someone who wants to follow Jesus, someone who wants to take a stroll into real Christianity, this is a process that someone walks through, that a person walks through. And it is all fueled by repentance. It's all fueled by repentance. This stuff is hard. Meekness is hard, just to lay that out there. It's hard. This is not natural. For me, when I, when I was preparing for this and studying through this, and as I come back to this, it's almost a joke to me, right? Like, I almost feel like God plays a joke on me when, he, when someone asks, hey, can you preach on this specific text? And for me, when it was blessed are the meek, I almost laugh, like, are you kidding me? If you know me, meekness, not really a, a high characteristic on my, on my chart, right? Like, meek, you laugh at me, you know me, you do life with me, you go, Brian, meek, man, you got to be kidding me. Anything but meek, anything but meek. And God, for me, a few weeks back, brought this to light in such a beautiful way as I was sitting in a meeting with a couple of guys, and we were talking about our, my future specifically, and they were saying some things that I didn't necessarily agree with and wasn't really down with. And my automatic reaction in my heart was frustration, anger, annoyance, wanting to flip tables, thinking like I can do it like Jesus and turn some tables over a little bit, right? Thinking that I was totally righteous and, and, and able to do that. But I, I started to write down going, man, like, God, why am I, what are, what are the idols you are showing in my heart right now? What are the things that my heart are clinging to right now that are causing me to react this way right now? And God was showing me, this area of my heart, this area where I was lacking in meekness. And so I was grateful for the grace that God showed me in this. And so it was beautiful. For you, if you become uneasy in hearing this as we start to journey through this a little bit over the next few moments, if you become easy, uneasy hearing what the meek person looks like as we describe what that looks like, it's a good thing. Don't shy away from it. Don't shut down from it. Don't ignore it. But embrace it because I believe Jesus through his spirit is doing something in our hearts here this morning as we walk through this. So if you become uneasy in hearing this, Jesus is driving us into what real Christianity looks like. It's a process and it's fueled by repentance. First, we've got to look at the order in which Jesus leads us through the Beatitudes, right? Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's essentially this. I bring nothing to the table. I have nothing in and of myself to offer to the holy and righteous God. I bring nothing to the table. I've got nothing to offer the kingdom. I have no ability to save myself. I am spiritually bankrupt, creating with me, within me, a humble dependence upon a great God and Savior to do the work for me. John Stott rips it like this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain I fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. It's in this reality of humble dependence upon God that those who are poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of heaven. Right? Martin Lloyd-Jones, another great, great theologian, drops this. There is no one in the kingdom who is not poor in spirit. For this is a fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all other characteristics essentially flow through this, from this. Right? So we've got nothing to bring to the table, creating within us a humble dependence upon God. Then we move on to Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What's he getting at here? It's essentially this, a mourning and a brokenness over the reality of my sin in my life. That my sin has created a distance between me and God, that I am dead and I am separate. And the reality of this before a holy and pure and righteous God creates in me a mourning, a sorrow, a mourning of repentance over sin and brokenness, but that essentially moves you to change. It's not a worldly sorrow that leaves you and leaves you on a path towards death, but it's a sorrow and a mourning that moves you towards change. And in that, in that is a comfort that comes from knowing and receiving the free forgiveness of God in Christ. Can you imagine at this point, like how some of the Jewish people would have felt about this, right? Jesus coming on the scene, like their understanding would have been, hey, big military, strong king coming, overthrow Rome. And here's Jesus literally flipping it upside down, what the kingdom of God is going to look like. The Jewish people might have responded a little something like this. And for us New Englanders and essentially Bostonians, north of Bostonians here, right? We could probably relate to this a little bit, right? At least I can, okay? Admit weakness? Admit failure in my life? Confess sin? Mourn over sin? Show emotion? Are you kidding me? Poor in spirit? Admit that I bring nothing to the table? No way. If you're a New Englander, if you're a Bostonian, if you've grown up around here, if you have roots in here, you might have this survivor mentality, right? The survival of the, uh, of the fittest, only the strong survive, right? So that idea of confessing sin, of opening up my life, of, of mourning, of brokenness, of admitting failure, of admitting that I bring nothing to the table, might not run within the DNA of who you are if you are a Bostonian or north of Bostonian person, right? I know that for me. But no, I figure it out for myself, man. I've got this thing down pat. You know, I don't need you. I don't need to admit failure. I'll just pick myself up and I'll keep going because I know what I'm doing. And I've got this down pat. I've got this. I don't need you. I'm not going to show emotion because that shows weakness. 
That admits failure in some way. And so I'm going to dig my heels into the ground. I'm going to take my rah-rah attitude. And I'm going to continue to plug forward. And no one's going to stop me. And I'm going to do this by myself. Right? Can you feel that at all as a New Englander, as a Bostonian in some way? What Jesus is teaching us is that this is what the gospel life looks like, though. Fueled by repentance. He's showing us that this is what the life does. It takes its cues from the beauty of the gospel. And sees Jesus as their one and only true king. Right? So here we go. We get to meekness, not weakness. What is meekness? It's an attitude of humble submission to God's will that's reflected towards God, towards self, and towards others. Towards God, towards self, and towards others. This is first, right? I can't just tell you that this is, you're going to hear this, right? And maybe hear a lot of list of things of what meekness describes and feel the weight of that and go, man, I don't do that. What we first have to lay in the groundwork is this, is that this is an inward work that is produced by the spirit that begins to produce itself outwardly first. This has to be a spirit birth process in our heart that leads us to Jesus day in and day out. It's not a weakness that's reflected in how well you shy away from difficult situations. It's not, a we- it's not singing to the tune, right? If you grew up in the mid-80s, late-80s, singing to the tune of don't worry, be happy, right? Anybody rock that tune out back in the mid-80s, late-80s? I feel like you would have probably in some way, okay? I loved that jam when I was a kid. Everyone be happy. Everyone be joyful. Let it just fall off your shoulders. Everything is, a f- everything is a pony ride through the park with flowers and sunshine and rainbows and clouds. Everything is beautiful. Nothing's going to bother us. We're just going to be joyful and happy and not allow any distraction or difficult situation to take me off course. But meekness is an attitude that reflects great strength under control. It's ultimately an attitude that reveals what faith looks like. And essentially it's this. It's Jesus. Meekness is Jesus. Meekness is all about Jesus, and meekness is impersonated in Jesus. All right, so what does that look like in a person's life? Let's rip through this. We'll look at it through how it looks like with God, with ourselves, and with others. That word meekness, right? Greek word praus, fancy word praus. This is a word that was used when referring to the taming of animals. This was the result. Right, especially like you think of horses, right? You think of a horse that is let go and he's just allowed to do whatever he wants. He runs free and is like a wild stallion, untamed, uncontrollable. But this word was the result of the animal's submission to the reins of the master. He was submit he was submitted to the reins and the desires of its master, especially, right? So the meek person. We want to look at it this way. A meek person is completely submitted to the Father's will. They're not easily swayed by other people's influences, demands, or anybody else's will on their life. But they are completely influenced by God's opinion and will for his life, right? Jeremiah 18. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, 
Can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Right? The meek person is moldable, is shapeable, is adaptable and humble enough to allow the father to influence and determine the course of his or her life. And it's only his hands that you allow to shape you. Again, not influenced by other people's opinions of you. You're not swayed by what people think of you, but you're only influenced by what the father thinks of you and says for you and calls for you to do. Right? And in this, a meek person must be strong. A meek person must be strong. And when we use this word strong, we're not talking about the planet fitness guy who picks things up and puts them down, right? We can hear that word strong and think that, right? The big muscular dude picking things up, putting them down, right? But the meek person is strong. Can't be weak. The weak person will fear and be influenced by what others think rather than what God thinks of them. On the contrary, a meek person fears the Lord and is influenced and moved by God rather than by people, right? Moses, great Old Testament example, right? In Numbers chapter 12, right? Drops it on us like this. Now Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. We're talking about Moses here, right? Didn't want to speak for God, but went up to Pharaoh demanding, let my people go. Pharaoh, the strongest person and of most influence on the earth at that time. And Moses goes to him and demands him to let my people go. Meekness in a person is not a confident, arrogant, cocky swagger, but is more measured in fearlessness. Fearlessness. The meek person is unafraid to stand before people. Because he's motivated only by what God's opinion of him is, right? So that's meekness in the life of a person with God. Not influenced by others. Only influenced by what God's opinion is of him, right? But what about with ourselves? What about meekness in our relationship with ourselves? You see where Jesus lands with meekness? It's after poor in spirit. It's after those who are mourning. Meekness doesn't come unless you are poor in spirit. Unless you come with that mentality of, I bring nothing to the table. And until I see myself as a dirty sinner before a holy and pure God. That all I deserve, all I deserve is extinction. I deserve nothing but extinction. But this produces an attitude and a disposition of heart that is void of pride. And it's willing to receive God's estimate of him. It receives God's estimate of him. Because in Christ, I'm everything. And I have everything. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul lays it out like this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works that no one may boast. 
So what does that look like in a person? The meek person is finished worrying about himself. He's finished feeling sorry for him or herself, but is wrapped up in the sovereignty of God, that God is ruling and he is reigning over every single sphere of my life. And rather than self-pitying over things that don't turn out the way we expect, I am throwing myself into the sovereignty of God, that God's purpose and plan is prevailing in my life, no matter what that looks like. Matthew 6, Jesus called them to say, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble, right? And Paul learned this as well in in Philippians when he drops on them. I've learned, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me but had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstances I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, and abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Not all of us are at where Paul's at, though, right? Not all of us can admit that we get this down path, that this is a natural thing for us, right? Typically, we'll fall on one side or the other of the fence, right? To see that I'm nothing, and that I'm a dirty sinner, and that I bring nothing to the table, and that I continue to sin, and that all I am is nothing, that I am bankrupt and deserving of extinction, to think only in those terms can lead us to a self-pity, can lead us to a sorrow, can lead us to a regretful life, and it does not move us towards change. It does not move us towards repentance, a godly sorrow that does not move us towards repentance, but it's a worldly grief that eventually leads us to death, right? So we can throw ourselves on that side saying, man, I'm terrible and I hate myself and I'm nothing and this is who I am and woe is me, right? Woe is me. But on the other side, you can see that God is not only for me, but he's chosen me. I'm chosen. I am his. His stamp is on me. His seal is on me. I am his. I am, nothing, I am his, and nothing can ever take that away from me. And that can lead to a pride and an arrogance and a complacency in some ways. But the person who sees themselves for who they truly are and grasps how God truly sees them in Christ is to live in a place of meekness. The person is truly amazed that God can love them and treat them so well. It's not to stay in the place of self-pity. It's not to be in a place of arrogant or cocky swagger, but it's to live with that tension of knowing who I am, but who I am seen as, as God's son, based upon what Christ has done for me. And in that, they're calm and they're rested, right? Jesus' words in Matthew 11, again, come to me, all who are laboring and are heavy laden, And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me from gentle and lowly in heart. That word gentle is the same exact word that Jesus drops on us when he uses meek. And you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And these people are continuing 
to come to Jesus. They're continuing to accept the invitation to come, to come. Because Jesus is approachable and Jesus is teaching them what meekness is because Jesus is meek. There's no more need to defend. There's no more need to plant my pole in the ground and stand for what I stand for. There's no more need to make excuses. There's no more need to put up a front in order to protect and to impress anyone. There's no more need to lie or worry because in Christ I am and have everything, everything, right? But what about with others? How does this impact our relationship with others? Let's just be real for one second, okay? If we really get this thing, the gospel, the gospel changes everything, right? I love that. It's going to affect the way we treat each other, right? It's going to have some sort of impact, and it's going to affect the way and change the way we treat and deal with each other in some way, right? As we process and move and journey with Jesus, and as we are fueled by this repentance in our lives of continuing to come to Jesus, this thing's going to affect the way we deal with each other and the way we live our lives with each other, right? I've noticed this primarily in my own life, okay, right? Whenever I have been nervous about talking to someone or whenever I have been more concerned about how I'm going to look or how I'm going to sound or when I'm going to preach and how theologically robust I'm going to sound and the words that I'm going to use and are people going to... When I become more aware and more nervous about how I sound or how I look to someone else, I find that I don't listen at all to the other person in response in a conversation, in a dialogue, right? You feel that? I find because I'm so honed in on myself, I'm so concerned about how I'm going to sound, how I'm going to look, what people are going to think of me, what my reputation's going to be. I find that I do not listen at all because I am so drowned and deafened by the voice inside of me saying, how am I sounding? What am I saying? What are people thinking? And I'm completely deafened to anybody's response due to my own insecurity and my own fears at times. But a meek person will listen well to others because of his comfort in who he is and how he is viewed by Christ. Most of us can admit our own sins and shortcomings. We do that. We can corporately do that on Sunday. We can do that daily. We can do that within our gospel communities with each other, right, at times. For the, but for the most part, as individuals, when we come to this thing, this gospel, we understand that we can confess our sins by ourselves. But to do that or for someone else to point out our sins and for someone else to call us on our failures or our flaws or our in, or our in uh, securities or our fears or our hypocrisy, That's not that comfortable. It's not that beautiful. It's not that wonderful. But the meek person is willing to accept what others tell him because he would admit that about himself. And he won't be offended. The meek person's approachable, willing to listen, willing to learn from others. They're easy to talk to, right? Ask your spouse. Here's a little test for us. Ask your spouse. Ask your pastor. Ask someone in your gospel community a couple questions, right? Am I approachable? Do I have a genuine concern for others? Am I approachable? Am I interested? Do I have a genuine concern for others in my life? 
If we're afraid to ask someone or afraid of what the response might be, we're probably not that meek. But more honed in on ourselves. But again, this meek person is teachable and is willing to receive correction from others. That person is willing to learn from everything and he's willing to change himself in that. He sees God, the sovereign God, using different instruments, different people in his life to mold him and shape him, correct him to be the person and to, be, to, to continue on in the process of sanctification and holiness. Ephesians 4, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who's the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The meek person's not blasted out of the water at the revelation of another person's sin. To be shocked at someone else's sin means that we kind of see ourselves better than that person. If we are shocked at the revelation of someone else's sin in their life, we have a false view of ourselves in light of the gospel. And we have never seen the reality of our sin in our life clearly, maybe. It's the sin of self-righteousness. It reveals the truth that we don't actually have a true view of ourselves. That we don't have a full understanding of the gospel of grace because how we view ourselves will show in how we respond to others and how we care for others and how we love others and how we come alongside others and how we teach and correct others because we have a right view of ourselves. Right? So we've just laid out a bunch of stuff, right? I've just given you a bunch of just labels and that's, a few things, right? And so you can feel that, and we could carry the weight of that, and that's just amazing, and we can go, man, I don't do 95% of that. I know in my life, I struggle to do any of that stuff. Right? So you can feel the weight of that and go, wow, that's horrible news for me in some ways because I don't do any of that. If this is what Jesus is requiring of me, and if this is what the gospel-centered life looks like, this is what living in the kingdom of God looks like here on earth, man, I'm coming up way short. But we need to kind of close with this. That Jesus is meekness. Meekness is all about Jesus. Listen to Peter's words here. For to you, for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he's reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Being meek is not just about what we do and what we don't do. It's about dependence. It's about trust in our Father, like Jesus. Like Jesus. Jesus was the most dependent person who ever walked the face of the earth, so dependent upon the Father. Jesus trusted the Father when he humbly and willingly accepted crucifixion on the cross, right? We go back to the garden, and Jesus begging and praying 
intently, tears, streams of blood coming forth from his forehead as he prays in agony, but comes to the conclusion that he says, not my will, but your will be done, Father. He hangs on the cross. He goes through this until he utters three of the most victorious words. It is finished. But why does Jesus do that? Why does Jesus wind up on the cross in this place? Was it because he was weak? Was it because he's powerless? Was it because he wasn't who he said he was, the son of God? It's because he submitted his will to the father's will for him. Trusting in the father to do what was good and right. And what was good and right was what the father was doing. The only thing that that the father was doing that was good and right was the only thing that could be done in that situation to bring lost sons and daughters back home into the fold. Sons and daughters who in rebellion against their creator had wandered, had strayed, had willingly left the creator. Jesus lays aside his power for our salvation. Jesus allows men to spit in his face and mock him and beat him and nail him to a Roman cross. All of this willingly and humbly done so that we could be brought back home, adopted and welcomed into the family of God. So if we just take Jesus as our example, though, if we just look at Jesus and go, man, he was a really wonderful example and did a lot of great things and can't believe someone would spit in his face and he'd let that happen. Like, that's a great guy. Like, that's a burden. To look at Jesus just as our example is a burden. To go, I need to follow him and try to do and, and, and emulate everything that he does can be just a burden. You know, the whole what would Jesus do tagline, right? Doesn't really work for us unless we ask What has Jesus done? He is not just our example, but he's our savior. Even when I mess up, I can come to you. I can learn from you. And I know you'll always be my savior. This is what following Jesus looks like. This is discipleship fueled by repentance. A continuing to come and take Jesus at his words again in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my, my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's thank God for his grace through his word to us this morning. I pray by your spirit, gracious God, you would seal your words. In our hearts. I pray even now, Father, you are moving things around. You are correcting us in areas that we need to correct. Father, I pray we would be open to correction by your spirit even now before we approach your table. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for loving us enough to say the harsh things when we need to hear them. That humble us and make us people who trust the Father, who humbly depend on our good Father to do his work in and through us, to make us more like Jesus. I ask you to hear our prayer and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.